everyone. Thanks for checking out this podcast. I hope today's conversation inspires you and builds your faith for the moment you are in right now. Know that God's love for you truly changes everything. Enjoy the message. How you get there is where you arrive. How you get there is where you arrive. Now, uh, throughout our uh, summer, we've been having some of this kind of series that they alluded to in the pre-service, the summer road trips. I and my family have been on a number of road trips this year. Uh, some of them have been quite short, a uh, few hours. One of them very recently was the 24-hour, that's one way, a 24-hour uh, door-to-door trip to uh, central Newfoundland. Now, have any of you ever done a 24-hour road trip with a nine-year-old and a seven-year-old? Can I get a show of hands from those people? No? Okay, God bless you. Yes, I appreciate you. Um, we have done this trip a number of times, and I can tell you that how you get there, what it feels like when we get to this location, can be wildly different based upon the journey. How many are we there yet? How many uh, eye rolls or exasperated sighs? All of those prefigure into how it feels when we get there, it can feel like actually a different place because how you get there is where you arrive. The journey actually kind of impacts the destination. And in the journey of life, this is all the more so the case. We're gonna take a look today at John chapter 14 and I'm gonna be reading throughout from the NIV. So if you wanna dig that out and follow along, I'd love to have you do that. And our Jesus is statement for today is Jesus is the way. Want to say that with me? Jesus is the way. It's very simple. Now, I have really, really appreciated the opportunity over these past few months to hear diverse voices share in diverse ways about this, this Jesus, this Jesus who uh, is uh, fully God and fully man, this Jesus who was and who is and who is to come, this Jesus who is my friend, and this Jesus who is my king. And I'm honored today to be able to wrap up this series by talking about this Jesus who is the way. So John 14. And this section is nested in a really, really large chunk of direct speech quotes from Jesus to his disciples primarily. And it comes on the heels of this opening verse from the previous chapter, from chapter 13 which is kind of a hinge point in the book of John, in my opinion, which reads like this. John 13, 1 says, Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and to go to the Father. Now, I want you to remember that. Tuck that kind of in the back of your brain, if you will. The time had come. So we're going to come back to that. So as Jesus really starts to lay it all out on the line for his disciples, for his closest friends, and to finally and fully convey to them that he's about to leave this world and that this will somehow actually be, be good for them, he begins to comfort them by saying this, beginning in the first verse of chapter 14 of John, do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God. Believe also in me. My Father's house has many rooms, And if that were not so, would I have told you that I am going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, then I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I am going. 
And then one of Jesus' closest followers, our good old friend Doubting Thomas, he chimes in with what I think is actually a fairly logical comment. He says, uh, Lord, uh, this is verse 5, Lord, we don't know where you are going. How can we know the way? It's a good question. I think that's a good question. Now, timelines in the Gospels can be hard to piece together sometimes when we look at them because they're kind of varied a little bit. At the end of the day, I can't say with any degree of certainty uh, whether or not they spent one year with Jesus or whether they spent three years with Jesus, especially if you think about them as individuals, not just as a clump of people. Maybe they spent less time, maybe they spent more. That's not really the point. The point is that the amount of time, the kind of time that they spent with Jesus absolutely radically shifted everything in their lives. We heard from um, Pastor Austin just a few weeks ago that these were relatively young men, and yet we read in Luke 18, 28, Peter, who's sort of the captain of the, captain of the team, if you will, he says, we have left all that we had to follow you. Nothing in their lives was the same anymore. And this idea that now this, this, this Jesus who they put all their hope in, this Jesus that they put all their eggs in his basket, he was somehow gonna be leaving them was very, very unsettling. And I think you can, you can feel their anxiety as you're reading through this text. And clearly Jesus himself could feel their anxiety too. So he tries to assure them that they will be together again, and that, in fact, they already even know the way that they need to go. But they don't know where he's going. I mean, this is pretty typical disciple stuff. This seems to happen over and over again as we read through the, the Gospels. I mean, they, they love Jesus. Man, they love him. But they just, they don't seem to always understand him. Can anybody relate <laughs> this morning sometimes maybe? So Jesus points out the fairly obvious and then Jesus comes back at them with a fairly unobvious reply. In verse 6 of chapter 14 he says, I am the way and the truth and the life. I am the way. The way to where Jesus is going is Jesus, I am the way. Or how you get there is where you arrive. Now, I don't know exactly who I'm speaking to uh, in this moment. And the truth is, that's always the case when you're speaking to a group of any size. I can't see behind your eyes. I don't know all of your history. And at least some of you in the room, I can see your faces, which is wonderful. But I also know that I'm being joined right now through the wonders of social media by people across town and across the world, and I haven't a sweet clue what their story is. I have a sense, though, I, I would say that it's, it's, you could gamble on it if you were a gambling person, which I would not encourage you to be, and that's not the point right now. But likely, there are people who are joining us right now who are sort of more exploring the faith. They're exploring the faith more so than they are being fully bought in. And I want to say, if you're here in the room or if you're joining us online, you are welcome. You're very, very welcome here today, my friends. But what I can say with a relative degree of certainty is that while I can't presume how you feel about Jesus, I can tell you these disciples, they loved Jesus. They loved him. Not just what he, he could do for them, not just his words or whatever, but like they had a deep 
and meaningful relationship with Jesus. They wanted to be where he was. Now, I can tell you, me personally, I have, I have often ended up in places in my life where I am more interested in what Jesus could do for me um, than I am in being with him. You know, I've been more interested in the, in the destination, you could say, than in the journey. And when, when I view things that way, I'm, I confuse, in fact, even what the destination really is. Now, I was recently asked to share a little bit of my life story with another local church. Um, now, if you know me at all, uh, which a lot of you do, then you'll know that I'm generally more inclined to ask you about your life than I am to try to tell you about mine. I don't know exactly why that is. I can tell you that it's not because I'm selfless. More so, it's probably because I'm self-conscious uh, in a way. This is kind of weird to say, but I have this sort of like a, an anxiety about my own life story because, frankly, it's a little bit free of drama and trauma. And because of that, depending upon who I'm talking to, I can sometimes feel either a little bit uncomfortable or awkward depending upon the kind of life story that you've led. And so just before I move on today, in the off chance that there's somebody else within the sound of my voice who shares my neuroses, this is a temporary situation. So this will be kind of a, a, maybe a word of encouragement, but also kind of a rough word of encouragement. Uh, a tragedyless existence is a temporary situation. In the words of the Ella Fitzgerald classic jazz standard, into each life some rain must fall. Or if you're a fan of rock music, which I tend to be, uh, the modern uh, rock band Foo Fighters has a classic that says, no one's getting out of here alive. <laughs> uh, into each life tragedy will come, whether it's in our lives or whether we become the tragedy, tragedy is going to come. So here actually, though, is the question. How will we have allowed God to shape us during this calm before the storm, to be ready for the storm? And then also, how are we using our security to help the insecure? Okay, that was all for free. Okay, so the, the point is, I was, as I was saying, I get lost. <laughs> so I was asked recently to share a bit of a story uh, with this other local church. And so I knew that I was going to have the opportunity today to chat with you guys. And so as I was preparing for this message, that message prep and this message prep came together and kind of created a bit of a, a message gumbo in my brain. And so I'm going to end up sharing a little bit of my story with you. Now, some of you might know this, but a lot of you might not. I grew up actually in this very church. My parents started attending here when I was about six or seven uh, years old. And if I can take just another little side note, just a short one, some of the people who are currently serving in children's ministry were serving in children's ministry when I was a kid. And so that says two things. One, they are wonderfully patient and faithful saints. And two, it says, man, we could use a little bit of new help. So if you are within the sound of my voice today and you've been thinking about it for a while and you go, you know what? I do feel a call towards kids ministry. You know what? I do love the next generation. You know what? I do want to serve. You can hit mw.church volunteer. I think that's going to hit 
on the screen at the end of the service as well, but mw.church slash volunteer, and you can sign up there. So I grew up here through the ranks of kids ministry, and then I went into student ministries. And then when I was 13 years old at a youth conference in Cincinnati, Ohio, I acknowledged a call upon my life. What at that point in time was often called a, a call to full-time ministry, or you might hear vocational ministry. The bottom line is, from that point forward, I operated as though I had a call in my life that absolutely everything, all of my resources, all of my time, all of my choices, all of me was going to be for Jesus. And from that, from that point forward, I never, I never doubted that call to be true. But here is, here's my somewhat oversimplified but honest confession to you here today. I chose the long way around. I chose the long way around. Now, if you're not familiar with the story of Israel's exodus from Egypt, don't worry, we don't have the time to read it all here this morning, but you really should check out the first few books of the Bible. It's an impressive story, and it kind of is the paradigm for really the whole Bible. So if you're unfamiliar with it, I would really encourage you to check it out. But the point this morning is that the distance from the locations of Israel's deliverance at the Red Sea, you know, where God intervened for them, and, and the promised land, you know, the land of Canaan, where they were supposed to be going, was supposed to have been just a few weeks' journey. You could walk it, in a few weeks. But how long did it take them to get there? 40 years! 40 years! Man, they took the long way around. And here's the thing, a lot of that was because of their own choices. There is no easy way to the promised land, but not all hard ways are created equal. There's no easy way to the promised land, but not all hard ways are created equal. Now, at the same time, as a 13-year-old, as I was discerning this call upon my life, I was also falling in love with something, guys. I've had a deep, deep-seated love relationship with rock and roll music. I loved to be able to write music. I loved to be able to play music. I loved to be able to record music. But this didn't seem like a problem to me at the time because... I was able to do a lot of those things within the context of the church, whether it was leading worship or doing special music at, at church events. Doing music and ministry started to become so fused in my thinking that by the time I graduated high school, I was doing so much of this, and I felt, you know what? Maybe I've already made it to the promised land. And I maybe, maybe I almost had. Almost. But here's... Here's the little deviation. Here's the little rub. I had started to drift. Now, in a testimony like this, sometimes when you hear the word drift uh, in a church context, you might, might think that what I'm going to say is I stopped believing in God, or I, I started drinking and using drugs, or I started sleeping around. And it was none of those things. What it was is I started to love the attention. I started to love the attention. I loved the attention of what I was doing more than I loved the person that I was supposed to be doing it for. It was a small, small shift, you know, just a, a slight deviation in course, but small shifts 
over long periods of time can lead to wide, wide gaps. I remember when I was in Ontario and Western Canada on tour, I was doing, I was doing some concerts and I remember just instead of seizing the opportunity to do what I said I was there to do, which is to minister to people, right? To really spend time connecting, to ask questions, to pour into them. After the concert, I would go out into the common area, basically absorb as much praise as I possibly could from the people who were nearby, and then I would retreat back into the van and play video games. I mean, and here's the thing. I truly, I truly think at the, at the time that I thought, well, when I'm really famous, when I, when I really have a big platform, you know, then, then I'll give back. Then I'll, I'll pour into the lives of people. Then I'll really minister for God. But the, <laughs> it's, a, it's a sad joke I see now because the truth is, is that how you get there is where you arrive. How you get there is where you arrive. So when Esther and I got married, uh, my success as a musician had landed me uh, homeless, jobless, and hairless. Um, and so, uh, nonetheless, we decided to, to one more kick at the can. We decided to really go down the road. And so what we tried at that point in time is we tried with the existing members of the band that I was in to move to Nashville, Tennessee. And it really felt, it's funny, it really felt at the time like God was to continue the analogy from Exodus, like the waters were parting. God was moving. Uh, people who owned homes were able to sell their homes quickly. We were able to get our, our, our visas quickly. Like everything seemed to be working out. It seemed like maybe this was it. <laughs> but what it was, was about two years of mostly just kind of soul-crushing defeat. Um, it, was, it was not an easy time. Th- there were some highlights, there were, but there were more lowlights uh, then there were highlights. Uh, just a few weeks ago, Esther was actually cleaning out our spare room, and she found a bunch of, I'm kind of a hoarder, and so she found a bunch of stuff that she was like, you got to get rid of this. And so I, I snapped a few photos of what I would consider pleasant memories uh, from our time down there. And so this first one here, I figured, yeah, so this is, this is a delivery sheet um, uh, from when I delivered uh, fried chicken and pizza for people so that I could try to make a little money on the side while I was down there. Yeah, all right. You like fried chicken? That's good. Uh, and then this next one here, some of it's redacted because of, you know, personal information, but this is an application that Esther made when, when the, the pizza and the chicken wasn't cutting the mustard. Uh, she actually left me alone in Nashville for a little while and went up to the frozen tundra in Fort McMurray and did some substitute teaching for a few months so that we could try to pay the bills. And then this next one here, uh, none of that really helped when one day we were driving from uh, Nashville, where we were staying, all the way down to Franklin, Tennessee, about 45 minutes south to be able to do something. And our uh, 2005 Dodge Neon uh, bit the dust on the side of the road. And this is the, I think it's a $65 towing charge for that. And I did not have $65, let alone the $1,000 that it was going to cost to put a new transmission in the car. Just a few pleasant memories. And this doesn't show you. I, I wish that we had photos to show you of the times where I, I sold blood uh, to be able to make a little bit of money. This doesn't show you the times where we had an actual kind of conundrum where we were cooking spaghetti and a cockroach fell from the ceiling into our spaghetti and we had the difficult choice of going, do we take the cockroach out and eat the spaghetti? It also doesn't show you the times morning after morning when we woke up on an air mattress that had deflated overnight because we didn't have a bed. So needless to say, 
it didn't really work out. I was not a superstar for Jesus. It did not work out. I wasn't famous. What I was, was a man who was about to become a father, who had never held down a long-term job of any kind, and suddenly realized that this little bundle of joy would someday soon need to eat food. So, I got a job. I know. I heard that. I heard that gasp. I got a job, just a regular job, a job at a store that sells things. I got a job, and I worked that job. Now, I didn't stop making music instantly, and my dreams of, of fame, my aspirations didn't just like instantly fall away. But over time, I mean, I just had a lot less time to be able to do that. So I got that job, and I worked that job day in and day out, day in and day out. You know what I'm saying. And then one day, a few years later, I woke up one morning, and guys, I am surprised, just as surprised now as I was then to tell you that I woke up and I realized that I didn't crave to be famous anymore. I, uh, I, was, I was content. I was happy. I was happy to have the job that I had. I was happy to have the family that I had. I was happy to serve where I did in the church. And I was happy to serve people day in and day out who knew my name sometimes and to serve people who would never know my name and simply did not care. And it was on the heels of that contentment that one day, about six years ago, the Holy Spirit dropped a bug in my head and I applied for the recently vacated position of pastor of worship here at Moncton Wesleyan. And as I said, six years later, here we are. And I can see that all along, all, all along the way, it was, a, it was a desert wandering of sorts, right? It was, a, it was the long way round. I was being tried. I was being tested. I was being purified. And most of it, a lot of it, was of my own, of my own choosing, like the people of Israel who, though they had been miraculously brought out of Egypt, they still doubted the rest of the road ahead. I apparently needed the long way around. Now, I can't easily pinpoint a, a Red Sea moment. You know, one of those moments of utter crisis where you're followed up by utter deliverance. But I can, I can easily pinpoint a hundred little moments where I chose to take the long way to the promised land. And to an outsider looking in, this is the funny part, I think. Um, to an outsider looking in, it probably looked the whole time like I was on the right path. I mean, I was going to church. I was reading my Bible. I was generally kind. I even gave 10% of my money, such, such money as I had, of course, to the church. I did all of that. And yet, I had fallen in love at the time a little bit more with what Jesus could do for me than I was with Jesus. As Nathan reminded us just a few weeks ago, paraphrasing St. Augustine, I wanted the gifts more than I wanted the giver. Can anybody identify? Don't show your hands, but can anybody identify with that today maybe? But that's not what we see when we're back here in John 14 with Jesus and his disciples. When Thomas cries out that they don't even know where he's going, it's not because they're looking for more miracles. It's not because they really love the taste of that multiplied bread. It's not because they're looking for more fame, you know, more notoriety amongst those Pharisees. It's because they love 
Jesus and because they want to be where he is. The disciples were not perfect. We know this. They're far from it. But they wanted and they were willing to walk in the footsteps of Jesus. And do you remember what, or maybe rather who, is the way to be with Jesus? Jesus, that's right. Jesus is the way to be with Jesus. How you get there is where you arrive. Now maybe you remember near the beginning of the message I said, tuck John 13, 1 into the back of your brain. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and to go to the Father. And as I was reading through this passage, it suddenly struck me. Up until this point, Jesus was actually trying not to die. If you read just a single example in John 7, I mean, it's, it seems clear that he knew that he was going to die, but he was trying not to die yet. Now, you might say, uh, Pastor Mark, this is uh, not exactly revelatory stuff you've got here. Well, you know what? Maybe you're just smarter than I am. I'm willing to admit that. I'm a big, big person. But the truth is, is that I was surprised to discover this. And here's the reason. I get the sense that the church tends to sort of fall off the log in one of two directions when it comes to the life of Jesus. Either we remove most of the miracles and the whole kind of rising from the dead thing, and we basically boil Jesus down to being the most prolific moral philosopher of our time, or we strip all that stuff out and we pretty much only concentrate on the, the moment of, of Christ's death. Now, here's the thing. Christ's death and resurrection matter. They matter a lot. But so too do his life, his words, his deeds. Together, all those things fuse to create the way. Maybe you've heard this before, but even if you haven't, the earliest name for the, the religion or the way of Jesus was actually, in fact, the way. And before people were called Christians, they were called followers of the way. Listen, not believers in the way, but followers of the way. The New Testament is absolutely riddled with writings that suggest that what we say and do actually kind of matter in some way if we claim to be followers of Jesus. I mean, Jesus' infamous parable of the sheep and the goats from Matthew 25, where he clearly says that whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters, you did for me. Or Paul's exhortation to the church at Corinth, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. Or James's eulogy to faith without works, where he says, faith by itself that is not accompanied by action is dead. I mean, it is everywhere. And, and yet, and yet we also know that simply acting like Jesus is not the same thing as having a connection, a heart connection with Jesus. I mean, you can do all the right things, check all the right boxes, and still apparently one day you can hear the voice of Jesus say something like he says in Matthew 7, 23, away from me, I never knew you. There is a tension. There's a tension between being and doing, 
between being and doing. And this tension has existed for the 2,000 years that the church has been around, and I hate to break it to you, but it's unlikely that it will be solved here today. Now, there was a fashion trend when I was a teenager, and it was the WWJD bracelet. I will give you bonus points if anybody's wearing a WWJD bracelet here today. Anybody? Show of hands. Do I have anybody? No? Man, they were everywhere. They were ubiquitous. It stood for what would Jesus do? What would Jesus do? And as, as tacky, perhaps, as maybe the bracelets were, they actually were kind of a helpful reminder, something akin to actually what Pastor Joel taught us uh, last weekend about uh, the tassels that were, uh, that were on the clothing, right? The zit-zit, if I said that right, I practiced all week long. But here's the thing, it really doesn't matter how well you wear a bracelet or a tassel, you can't actually behave your way into a relationship with Jesus Christ. That's, that's not how that works. And, and yet, again, here's the other side of the tension. Throughout the Gospels, Jesus extends several invitations to people for, for them to follow him even before they've had a chance to get to know him at all. It's sort of a, a taste and see that the Lord is good type scenario. So here it is. Here's what it kind of boils down to. And don't hate me for this. It seems like you can do Jesus-y stuff and not necessarily know Jesus, but it doesn't really seem like you can know Jesus, like really know him and yet not do Jesus-y stuff. Jesus's way is, is the way. How you get there is where you arrive. I was out for coffee uh, the other day with a friend of mine that I haven't seen in a very long time. And I was telling him just a little bit of this story of mine. And he asked what I thought was a very good question. He said, how, how can you know that where you are now is, you know, the, the promised land? Like, how do you know you're not just on another uh, pit stop towards exile? And I thought, man, that is a pointed and very sharp question. But it's only a question that would come to his mind if I made a mistake in telling the story. Of course I'm not at the promised land. Of course I'm not done yet. And if you can hear my voice today, then neither are you. If you still have breaths to take, you still have steps to take. And each one of those could either get us a little bit closer or a little bit further. Either we are more on the way or we are less on the way. But there is no standing still in life. Jesus' way is the way and how you get there. Church, how you get there is where you arrive. I am all too often visibly impatient with my children. It is a genuine problem. And I can say, well, it's because I'm tired, because I'm often very tired. Or I could say, well, it's because I'm hungry, because I'm often very hungry. Or I could say it's some other kind of extenuating circumstance, because there's always some kind of circumstance. But at the end of the day, that's just a cop-out because when I read the fruit of the Spirit in the book of Galatians, I didn't see any kind of clause that said, except when tired or hungry or some other extenuating circumstance. That's not how this goes. I don't get the opportunity to just wait to be at my very, very fully primed best before I follow in the way of Jesus. That's not how this goes because how you get there is where you arrive. 
church, we don't get to wait to follow Jesus with our finances until we're plush with money. Church, we don't get to wait to follow Jesus with our sexuality until it lines up nicely with our desires. We don't get to wait to follow Jesus into the way of forgiveness until it turns out there's just nobody left in our lives to forgive. We don't get to wait. We have to start now because how we get there, how we get there is where we arrive. Like I said earlier, I don't know I don't know who's with me today. I don't know who's in the room. But I can, I can pinpoint about four different groups of people. And in just a few moments, actually, we're going to have the ushers come through the room and they're gonna distribute some communion elements. And during the time ahead, I'm gonna ask you to kind of ponder where you might be today. So here's the four different groups of people that I can think of. One, there are some of us out there who are walking the way of Jesus with great joy and with with great contentment. And yet we're also really, really looking forward to the destination. And for you, I say, praise God for you. And you keep on going. Second, there are some of us who just love Jesus. Man, we love Jesus. (laughs) And we seem to really be in communion and connection with him. But our lives, you know, whether it's internally or externally, if we're honest, our lives don't really seem to be jiving very well with the way of Jesus. We aren't reflecting his way. Today, I would encourage you to ask for either the courage to take the steps that you already know that you need to take or for the wisdom to see what those steps might be. Number three, there are some of us who actually, for the most part, I mean, we love this whole path of Jesus thing, at least from what we can see. I mean, we love being connected to the church. We love reading our Bible. Some of us actually really, really like serving in the community, helping people who are in need. I mean, extremely Jesus-like behavior, but our love for Jesus, it's either run cold or maybe it's never really sparked up in the first place. And if that's you today, I just wanna remind you the way to Jesus is Jesus. And if you wake up one day and find out that you got there, but that you're not really in love with the one that you've been working towards this whole time, what will that be like? Why would you wait to build a relationship? Start today. And lastly, number four, there are some of us who are within the sound of my voice today, whether in the room or online, who are nowhere on the way and frankly have no desire to be. If you are still with me up until this point in time, then please receive my congratulations and my appreciation and say that you, again, are very, very welcome here. But also receive this word of encouragement. Jesus is the way worth following. He offers himself to you completely free at completely no cost to you. And then following him will cost you literally everything that you have. And you will never regret the choice today. What's more is that almost all of us in this room, we know somebody who falls into that last category. 
whether it's a friend, a family member, a coworker, or a neighbor, there's somebody who we know who has yet to cross the line of faith. And for them, we need to do a little bit more, a little bit more than just pray that their eyes are opened. We also need to pray for ourselves, church, that we might become fully alive, fully integrated, spirit-filled followers, followers of the way take up our cross daily and to follow after Jesus. Listen, we can't earn it. Don't hear me. You, I know that you can't earn your way into the kingdom. That's stupid. But I also know that what the Apostle Paul has said is that we need to live up. We need to live up to what we have already attained, to take up our cross daily and to follow after Jesus, who is not simply the way, truth, and life, but our way, our truth, and our life. And in just a few moments, the ushers are going to be coming through the room and they're going to be handing out the elements. I'm going to encourage you to remain seated and there's going to be a song that's going to be played for us kind of an opportunity for us to reflect and to contemplate all the way my Savior leads me. As you come through, you need to know that these, these elements have been safely prepared. You are welcome and we would enjoy, we really, really encourage you to take part, but you are obviously not, not required. There's a single cup that you're going to take out. I'm going to ask you to hold on to those elements and then I will lead you through taking them in just a few moments. And if you're at home today, then right now would be a great time to sneak out to the kitchen and grab some crackers or bread, some kind of juice, so that even you can participate in this with us. So they're coming through the room now. We'll see you soon. Thank you for listening. If you would like to learn more about Moncton Wesleyan, we invite you to visit our website at mw.church. We are here to help you with any questions you might have. See you next time.